Chris and the worship team for leading us in worship this morning. We appreciate that opportunity to take the time and to come together and worship. In 1893, there were three young men. One of them, Roland Bingham, was 21 years old. The others were a little bit older, but they were all in their 20s. And these three young men gathered together. They were two Canadians and an American. And these three young men set out on a dangerous journey. They sailed from Canada with the goal in mind Just shout louder. Okay, there we go. <laughs> I could do that. I didn't think it sounded quite right here. Okay, are we, are we all set? Is that better? Okay, good. We're getting the okay from the AV guys. Okay, thanks for that. So, so this young man, or these three young men, set out to go to the interior of Nigeria. And as I said, it was, a, it was an unexplored area. There hadn't been very many... Uh, basically white folks, the colonizers, the settlers going up into that area yet. And they, but they, God had laid on their hearts the desire to reach out to these people who had not heard the gospel. They didn't really know what they were getting into. They had talked to various mission organizations to see if the mission organizations would get behind them and support them in the work that they were, felt that God was leading them to do. None of the organizations were interested in supporting them. None of them saw that this was an important enough work or whatever reasons they had. They said, no, we're not going to. Uh, you can't go with us. We don't really want you to do that. And so they set up their own organization, calling it the Sudan Interior Mission, which is the mission that I was with. So they set off in 1893. They sailed from Canada sailed to the uh, coast of Nigeria, landed there. And uh, when they got there, they were warned of the dangers, of the risks that were ahead of them. They were warned that, they were, uh, that there was disease. And they knew about that. We didn't really know at that time. They, they didn't really know what the diseases were, but they knew that often in these places, uh, the diseases were there. They were venturing into territory that was not well established and well explored. So they were warned that you, you don't really know where you're going. And there, we, if you go there, uh, you, you don't know what you're going to find. You don't know if there, there won't be any support for you there. So there is the diseases, malaria, yellow fever. There's a lack of support. Uh, you don't know how the people who are there are going to receive you. You don't know what's going to happen when you get there. There's the animals and all those risks are there. It's dangerous. There's hardship in traveling to those remote places. They were headed about 800 kilometers north of the coast. That was their, the goal that they had in mind. And think back to 1893 
they would have largely walked or gone by ox cart that 800 kilometers. Unfortunately, Roland Bingham fell sick while he was still at the coast. And he never actually set off on the journey. The other two, Thomas Kent and Walter Gowans, they set off on this journey. They went ahead when Roland stayed behind on the coast to be sort of a go-between and to keep the supplies going. Thomas at one point returned. He left Walter uh, where he was and started to return to the coast. Uh, they needed resupplying. After Thomas left, a slave trader, which was still happening in those days, came along and captured Walter. Kept him for a while and eventually he was released. But he also falls sick. So he also heads back to the coast. So this is not a very auspicious start to the work for these three men. We read another, also about another man who traveled widely and had big goals for what God was going to do in him and through him. And that's the Apostle Paul. And on this map, and you, you, you can't see it very well, but you can get an idea of all the places that Paul traveled to. And as you read carefully the book of Acts and the letters that Paul wrote, you read that he went on probably at least three journeys. And he went out from Antioch and went around Asia, uh, Asia Minor, went through Turkey, what is current day Turkey and Greece, stopping in cities, planting in churches, encouraging believers, ended up back in Antioch and he did that three times. And then uh, we read towards the end of the book of Acts, his what seems to be his fourth journey and he heads off to Rome. So the Apostle Paul is also one who traveled widely and in his travels he met many people. He spoke to many people. He preached the Gospel. He planted churches. He encouraged believers. And at one point in his travels, and we'll look at that in Acts chapter 20 and 21, he calls the elders of the church at Ephesus to come to him. He's traveling back to Jerusalem, going to Jerusalem. And he calls the elders of the church to come to him. And they spend some time together. And these were people who were very, very close to him. And they gathered together and he prays for them and commits them to, uh, to the care of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, uh, and they all, it says they all wept as they embraced him and kissed him as he sends, as he says farewell to these elders in the church at Ephesus. And this is the end of Acts chapter 20. So then that brings us to Acts chapter 21 where Paul and his companions, and one of them is Luke, who wrote the book of Acts because he starts to use words like we. So the writer is with Paul when he's traveling. So we, we come to the beginning of Acts chapter 21 where they are headed off to Jerusalem. And we read these words. And he says, after we had torn ourselves away from them, from the elders from the church at Ephesus, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patara. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on, went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre, 
where our ship was to unload its cargo. So if you have your map with you or a map in your Bible or on your phone, you can, you can trace quite clearly the places that Paul is going to on this journey. So he lays it out, uh, uh, the, Luke lays it out quite clearly for us. The story continues on. We sought out the disciples there and stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way. All of them, including wives and children, accompanied us out of the city and there on the beach we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship and they returned home. We continued on our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemais, where we greeted brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip, the evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owners of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, The Lord's will be done. Very interesting story here of Paul and his interaction with the believers and with different uh, churches, different people that he came in contact with. And so it's interesting to note here that first of all, the disciples, it says, through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. They seem to have heard the same message that was prophesied in verse 11, which is, in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owners of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. So it seems that they are hearing this message, that there is danger ahead for Paul in Jerusalem. It's going to be dangerous. And the, the disciples, the, the followers of Paul, the people with him are saying, Paul, don't go. It's too dangerous. Don't go to Jerusalem. Look at this is what the Spirit is showing us is going to happen. And you can't go. It's just going to be too dangerous to you. I don't think this was news for Paul that this was going to happen. Because we see when he was first converted, and this is back in Acts chapter 9, God says to Ananias, and Ananias is the one who Paul first came in contact with after he had an encounter with Jesus Christ. He couldn't see. He was blinded by this encounter that he had with Christ. And God gives this word to Ananias. And it says, he said, God says to Ananias, the one who was with Paul at that time, he says, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. 
Presumably, Ananias had shared this with Paul at some point. They spent time together as Paul, uh, after he was converted. Paul and Ananias spent some time together. And presumably, Ananias took the opportunity to, to share this with Paul. This sort of vision. This word from God about what was going to happen with Paul. So, all of the years of Paul's ministry... Now it comes time for him to head to Jerusalem and I'm sure this is in the back of his mind. Or maybe it's come to the front of his mind that okay, this is the time where I have to go and I have to, I'll get my opportunity to share with the kings and the people of Israel and I'll get my opportunity to suffer as well. So I don't think these words that were coming in Acts chapter 21 were of any surprise to Paul. He knew what was, what was coming. We also see in Acts chapter 19, just, just before all of these events are happening, he says, after all this had happened, Paul decided in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. And he says, after I've been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. So Paul knew exactly seems that Paul knew exactly what God wanted him to do. He knew exactly in his heart what he should do and how what following God and following God's lead would uh, lead him to. It was going to lead him to Rome eventually, but it was going to lead him to Jerusalem. He was going to encounter problems there. But then he was going to get to go to Rome. And so he knew what was coming. Paul wasn't afraid of that. Paul interprets all that, that the Spirit has been speaking to him and to others, to his followers. Paul interprets all of that and says, I accept that. He, 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 he takes it more as information about what he should do than guidance about direction in his life. The danger that's ahead of him means nothing because he says, this is what God wants me to do. This is the plan that God has laid out for me. I accept that. He is ready to go and die in Jerusalem. As it turns out, that's not what happens, but he is ready for that. On the other hand, the others that are hearing these words are concerned about Paul. And they're balancing safety and risk. They're saying, no, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. It's too risky. It's too dangerous. And so we want, and you understand their position, we, we want you to stay with us. We don't want you to go into danger. We don't want you to end up in prison or maybe killed in Jerusalem. They have seen and they knew about someone who had faced the authorities in Jerusalem and what had happened to him. And if you don't get that reference, we're talking about Jesus there. Of course, they knew what had happened to Jesus. And now Paul seems to be headed on this trajectory towards Jerusalem and they're thinking, you know what happened to Jesus? the same thing is going to happen to Paul. We're going to lose another leader in a way, and although Jesus was resurrected and came back, I doubt they had the same hope if, if that was to happen to Paul. And so they were saying, no, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. So they were hearing the same message. The, the disciples, the followers of Paul, the ones that were with him, were hearing the same message. You go to Jerusalem and there's going to be trouble for you there, maybe even death. And they're interpreting it entirely differently. They're saying, don't go. And Paul is saying, I have to go. 
I have to go and I have to face this. This is part of what God has called me to do. There's danger ahead in Jerusalem for Paul, that's for sure, but Paul accepts that risk. He understands what God has called him to do. And he says, I'm going to do it because I'm sure that's what God has called me to do. There's danger ahead for Paul. Paul accepts that, but he knows he needs to go. Others aren't so comfortable with that risk. And they say, don't go. But it all makes sense to Paul because he had been hearing since the time of his conversion that this is what had to happen. And so he wasn't surprised. And so he knew he had to head to Jerusalem. And he also had in mind to head eventually to Rome, which is what happens. He ends up in Jerusalem on trial, makes an appeal to Caesar and gets sent off to Rome. So things are unfolding pretty much the way Paul thought they would. But Paul wasn't afraid to to go to Jerusalem because it was too dangerous. He knew that's where God wanted him to be. That the fact that it's too dangerous never figured into the equation for Paul about the calling of God. He never said, well, it's too dangerous, so I must have misunderstood what God was asking me to do. No, he knew the danger, but he also knew what God was calling him to do. So it seems here that what's happening is the same message is going out to all the people, but they're interpreting it differently. Paul's going to go to Jerusalem and he's going to be in trouble there. Going to dangerous places, doing dangerous things does not make it out of the will of God. Taking risk does not mean that is outside the will of God. When God calls you to do something, God wants you to obey. Not to weigh the risk and the reward or the danger against the benefits, but simply to obey. Now, danger can take many forms. Danger can look different for many different people. But let's get back to the story of Walter, Thomas, and Roland. So after we've, we left the story with Walter sick and headed to the coast. Thomas headed also back to the coast to resupply the mission and Roland sick, unable to travel. They head back. They head back to the coast. Walter doesn't make it. He dies in a village called Gurku. Thomas Kent also passes away. He gets sick and he also passes away as he's waiting for Walter to join them and head to the coast. By this time, Roland Bingham is in such poor health, he cannot do anything. And his two co-workers that he set out with are dead. And Roland heads back to Canada to recuperate. And all that has taken less than a year. It appears that maybe they've missed God's will. They felt God calling them to this place, the three of them, and now two of them are dead. Surely you'd stop and say, I think we made a mistake. I think the cost was just too high. But Roland Bingham doesn't give up. On his return, he goes and visits Walter's mother. And Roland writes his recollection of that, of that account of meeting them, of meeting Walter Gowan's mother. And he says, we stood there in silence. 
Then she said these words, Well, Mr. Bingham, I would rather have had Walter go out to the Sudan and die there, all alone, than have him home today, disobeying his Lord. Roland Bingham didn't give up. Somehow he weighed the costs and felt that this was still the burden that God had placed on his life. He tried again in 1900, so seven years later to go. That effort failed. And in 1902, he tried for a third time and he managed to establish a base there. He himself was too weak and too sick and too damaged by the illnesses that he had experienced to really be able to stay in the field for a very long time. But he, the work that he started there grew. A church was planted. And today there's a church in Nigeria called the Evangelical Church Winning All, ECWA. And it's made up of over 6,000 congregations and has about a membership of around 6 million people. Was it too dangerous? Was it worth the cost of Walter Gowans and Thomas Kent of their lives to build that church? It's hard to weigh. Probably not. Church history tells us that, the, that there's, a, there's a saying that goes, the, the, seed, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That often the church planting, the church work that happens, happens on the back of suffering and difficulty and danger and risk. And this kind of story is repeated throughout church history. Around the same time, Uh, there was a lady called Mary Slesser from Scotland. And she also served in Nigeria, but with a different organization. And she served there from 1876 until her passing. She passed away there 40 years later, roughly, in 1915. And for the 40 years that she was there, she suffered one bout of malaria, yellow fever, dengue, again and again. And she was almost always weak and in some state of uh, ill health. And she kept that up for 40 years. More recently, there were five young men, Nate Saint, Jim Elliott, Ed McCauley, Pete Fleming, and Roger Yodirian, who reached a remote tribe in Ecuador in 1956. And the early contact they made with the people that were there seemed friendly enough. And so they went and tried to establish a more permanent contact with them. And a few days later, the people that they were there to reach turned on them and attacked them and killed all five of these young men. So this still goes on today. And even more recently, just in the last few months, John Allen Chow uh, went to the North Sentinel Islands in the Bay of Bengal off the east coast of India. And there's a lot of debate, if you remember his going. When he went and landed on the beach immediately, the the, the Sentinelese there came out and killed him and left his body on the beach. And there were, they tried to recover it and they couldn't because of the danger. And you say, it's too dangerous. They shouldn't have gone. They shouldn't have, have made that sacrifice. Did all of these examples of people fear the danger? Yes, I'm sure they did. 
Did it stop them from going and doing the work that God called them to? No, it didn't. So you might say in our thinking, maybe that is the risk, is it really worth it? I don't think so. And some might say, well, isn't it better that we just leave those people groups alone, that we just let them go? And that's a good question and maybe one for another sermon, another discussion. But let me share with you some of the words from the website of the church that Roland Bingham planted about Roland Bingham himself. They say this. And these are, these are believers today in Nigeria who are saying this. This was a great sacrifice. And we cannot thank God enough for calling these young men. Nor can we thank them enough for answering God's call because of their love for lost people they have never seen. And so these are the believers saying this that come out of the work of some of these uh, people that have given their lives for the the task of, of reaching out, of taking that risk, of facing that danger and going ahead. And they say this was a great sacrifice they made, but they thanked them for us. More close to home, Elizabeth Moy here in our church says this in, our own, in her own words. And this is a post from, of hers from Facebook where this is a picture of the missionary that reached her tribe, her people, in China, and she writes, and she's not here today, but uh, she knows I'm, I'm saying this. She says, thank you to the missionary who obeyed God's calling to Hunan, China. Because of your commitment to doing God's work, my family was changed forever, eternally transformed. And so you ask those who have received the blessing, who have received the results of people willing to sacrifice, willing to take the risk, and willing to accept that danger, and there's appreciation for it. As you think about this, the dangerous or risky part of life doesn't seem to figure into God's economy. Just because it's dangerous, just because it's risky, doesn't mean it's not God's will for you. On the other hand, we can't just pick out the most dangerous thing to do and say, well, that must be what God wants us to do. We do need to, to, to be thinking about these things. But certainly can, we can't say when we look at something and we say, well, I think God's leading me to do this, but it's too risky, it's too dangerous, so I don't think that's what God wants me to do. That's not good thinking. That's not good thinking. The people that I have talked about, that I, the stories that I've shared here this morning, those were risky things that they were doing and they were following God's will. And that's what Paul was doing back in Acts 21. People around him, his advisors, were saying it's too risky, it's too dangerous, don't go to Jerusalem. And Paul says, but this is what God's will is for me, so I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway. And so the point here today and in this text is that it's saying and looking at a situation saying it's too dangerous is not an argument to say this is not God's will for me. Now most of us in reality will not be called to go to some remote tribe and give up our lives just to see them come to Christ. That doesn't seem to be uh, how God is at work generally in the life of His people. But there may be one of you who is sitting here wondering today wondering about that. 
and thinking, it's too risky. I don't think I can take that step. But maybe God's calling you just the same. Do you think that God is calling you to an easy, risk-free life that looks something like this? Where it's just smooth sailing, laying in a hammock beside a a beautiful beach and warm water and palm trees. Sorry to use that imagery in our cold Vancouver at the moment, but I don't think so. <laughs> Honestly, I suspect if you really, if you think you've sought out God's will and, and, and you've come to the conclusion that God's will for me is to lay in a hammock beside a beach, live out my days in sunshine and warm weather, you might have missed it. You need to go back and at least rethink and re-ask God, is that really what You've called me to do? Maybe look for a different answer. But what risks are we called to take? Because there can be lots of, uh, of risks that we can be called to take. And one of the interesting things about risk is that what I think might be risky and what I might feel as, as real risk and danger for you or for someone else, you might say, well, no, that's, 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 that, that's nothing. Or for you, you, you might be really afraid to do something and I would look at it and say, no, that's, that's easy. I can do that. So it's, it, 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 it's not a fixed scale of risk because each one of us interprets it differently. Melanie has just gone off to Singapore on her way to the slums in the Philippines. Christy is in Bolivia. We spent years in Zambia. We've got teams this year going to Guatemala or Mexico. And you might be looking at those sorts of things and saying, I could never do that. That's just too risky. That's just too dangerous. On the other hand, you may look at those opportunities and you say, wow, that's really exciting. I'd love to do something like that. And you don't really, the risk doesn't really measure in you at all. But God does call us to risk at some point. And Hudson Taylor, the founder of OMF, he said, unless there is an element of risk in our exploits for God, there is no need for faith. There's no need for faith if we just live our easy, calm, straightforward life. Now, sometimes we have those periods in life that are those easy times. There are those times when uh, we are just sitting by the beach and we can thank God that He has given us those opportunities. But I think God also calls us to risk as He calls us to faith. And there's risks even in our lives here, our day-to-day -day lives here in Vancouver. We don't have to go off to the mission field to some far-off country to experience risk. Sometimes the risk might be something as a loss of reputation in your workplace as you make a clear stand for Christ on an ethical issue. Your coworkers might think you're some kind of religious fanatic because of your attitude in some situation at work. I remember one time when I was working in the business world and I was in sales and I just started at a new company. And I, we had those office dividers, but they were only about this tall, so you could hear what was going on. And I remember the, the general manager of the company, who was also the owner of the company, come to one of my colleague who was in the office next door. And they were talking about a job that he was bidding on. 
And the, the sales guy, the other sales guy said to the boss, he said to the owner of the company, they said, you know, we, they're asking for a certain delivery and, and we, just, we, we won't be able to make that delivery. So I don't see how we can, we can bid on this job. And the boss, the owner of the company said, it doesn't matter whether we can make the delivery or not. Just tell them what they want to hear and then we'll figure it out later. And I was sitting there and I just, I just started this company and I was thinking, what have I got myself in for? What kind of company am I working for? Because the one I was working for before was very ethical and they would never do something like that. And now here I am, the owner of the company, maybe standing in my office telling me to lie to a customer. And I was like, what am I going to do if that ever happens? It never did happen to me. I never had to, was faced with that particular situation. But it caused me to stop and say, what would I do? And I decided I could do the only thing that I could do. There was only one thing for me to do. And that was to say, no, I'm going to tell the customer the truth. Or you can give this job to some other, one of the other sales guys to quote on. But I'm not going to lie to our customers. Not right off the start, not at any time. And so I wrestled with that, came to that conclusion and thought, well, you know, he's the owner of the company. If I, if I make that stand, he may say, well, if that's your attitude, then why don't you just pack up your stuff and go? And I thought, well, if that's what happens, that's what happens. Now, it never, it never came to that. But, but I wrestled with that and thought, what's going to happen? And what's the risk? And I took the time and I weighed the risk and I said, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell the truth. Maybe the risk is of some change in your income situation as you're following God's leading. Perhaps you hear a still small voice telling you to give, to give some of your money. Maybe to give a lot of your money. Maybe here at VCBC or to Jacob's Well or some other cause. And you wonder, how is this going to affect my standard of living? Am I willing to take that risk? Maybe that's the risk God is calling you to. Maybe you wonder, if I do that, what's my spouse going to say? How am I going to explain to my husband or my wife that I just gave away ten, fifteen, twenty thousand $20,000 because I thought that's what God was leading me to do? Sometimes that might be the risk we face. To give away our stuff and our money, but maybe God is calling you to do just that. Maybe God is calling you to take the risk of denying yourself and taking a leap of faith and moving to a position of less security and prestige as you move from a high-paying, big-expense account job to some uh, lesser job in the non-profit sector and taking a big cut in pay and a big cut in security and a big cut in prestige. And you do it all to serve God. Maybe that's the risk that God is asking you to take. Maybe the risk that God is asking you to take is just heading down to the downtown east side, stepping out of your comfort zone and moving out of the circle of people that you normally associate with and meeting some other people, spending time with some other people and putting yourself out there. Maybe that's the risk that God is calling you to take. I could go on and on and talk about the risks that even just right here in Vancouver in our own homes, we don't have to go anywhere, but maybe God is calling us to take a risk. To take a risk. To face that danger and not be discouraged from doing what God wants us to do. 
And not saying, it's too dangerous, but saying, here I am, Lord. Send me. So as you consider what God is asking you to do, don't uh, be, or just be careful in your risk assessment. If you evaluate the risk and find it's too great, go back and do a risk assessment again and factor faith and God in there and see what uh, you might be called to do. Kerry Newhoff wrote an article on uh, that's worth reading on on this balancing risk and uh, uh, evaluating risk, and he he entitled this article "How to Know Whether You're Trusting God or Just Being Stupid." And there's a link to that article in uh, in the bottom of your uh, of the sermon section of the bulletin. There, you can read that on your own. But he has interesting things to say about wisdom, about fear, about trusting God. He ends with a great quote from Augustine, the the early theologian. And Augustine says, Love God and do whatever you please, for the soul trained in love to God will do nothing to offend the one who is beloved. If you love God, if you really love Him, you can do whatever you please because what will please you is the will of God. And then the risk becomes... uh, immaterial or unimportant. And of course, when we think of, of taking risks and following God and doing uh, what God has called us to, we think of Jesus. He left His home in heaven to come down and live amongst us. He took that risk. He knew actually how the story was going to end. He knew what was, going to, what was coming for Him. But he didn't look at what was happening and he didn't look at God's plan and say, it's too dangerous, it's too risky, I'm not going to go. As it says in Philippians chapter 2, Jesus humbled Himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Jesus knew the risk. He knew the danger. He asked God if there was some other way and when God said no, He said, Your will be done. Can we have that same attitude of saying your will be done? Of putting aside the equation in the equation of risk and danger and say your will be done. Of following the example of Paul who, who knowing what was going to happen in a way he knew generally what was going to happen to him. He had been told, the Spirit had revealed it to a number, uh, on a number of occasions and he says I'm going to go because it's God's will. Jesus was there. He knew the difficult road He was going to have to walk. But in the end, He obeyed. And that's His example for us. To obey. And so now we come to the Lord's table. And we celebrate that. We celebrate Jesus' obedience. We celebrate His coming, His death and His uh, resurrection here. So as we come to the Lord's table, and if Deacon Philip could come and join me here, and the servers can come and help us, we're reminded of Jesus, of His willing acceptance of the risk of obedience to God. The Bible tells us that uh, this is what was given to us to, to celebrate 
<laughs> we'll, we'll get it sorted out here. Je- Jesus came and He came to give His life. He accepted the risk. And He died on the cross for us. And so we come to remember that. To remember that sacrifice. To remember that risk. To remember that danger that He went through as we celebrate the Lord's table. The Lord's table is for those to, we celebrate together with those who have accepted Christ as their Savior and followed Him in obedience in being baptized. And I invite anybody who has taken those steps to join with us. And if you haven't uh, taken those steps, uh, just let the elements pass, but you can reflect on what Jesus has done and on the, uh, the risk He took and the danger He faced. And as we uh, take the Lord's Supper, I just ask Deacon Philip to pray.